Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Acts 15, 1 through 11. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the, of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, I'm so excited, so thankful, and so honored to get to be here with you this morning. Uh, Russ got to teach chapel at Covenant Seminary, and then he is preaching at a church in St. Louis. And so I get to be here with you this morning. And this is an amazing passage, really. It's titled The Jerusalem Council. Well, my last name is Teller. And we're German Jews. And so, see, that's where I got this nose and this curly brown hair. The other thing about tellers is that we love to cook out. I grew up cooking out. We hung around the grill and cooked out. And so my dad, every opportunity, it didn't matter if he could find any opportunity to say, oh, we got to cook out, we would do it. Well, as I went off to seminary and worked in a church, I got close to some elders there, and they learned things about me, and they realized he loves to cook out. And so when I graduated, they got me a grill for graduation. It was unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. And this will tell you my age. I'm old. And so it had all these fancy things, like I had never seen an ignition button. That is, you didn't even need matches to start it up. It was amazing. And then there was this uh, eye on the side where you could be sauteing your mushrooms while you cooked your steaks. Never seen that either. It was incredible. But we were moving to Clarksdale, Mississippi, and so they said, you know, we were going to get it put together, but it'll travel better in the box, and you can put it together when you get to Clarksdale. Well, we tellers aren't great at putting things together either, but you know the golden rule. Real men don't use instruction manuals. <laughs> now, let me just give you another lesson. Anytime you start off the statement, real men, 
do the complete opposite. It'll go better. But I, you know how you get to a new job and you're working hard and it had been months since I had cooked out. And finally, I couldn't take it anymore. And I said, we, my wife, we have got to cook out. We're having the pa- senior pastor and his family over. I'm cooking out. I had a day off, so I was going to put it together. And of course, I wanted to be a real man, so I wasn't going to use the instruction manual. And I went to work. It had a picture of the grill on the side of the box. And I thought, man, I could put this together. I whipped it together, and it looked just like the picture on the box. I said, see, I didn't need those instructions. There were two pieces left, and I was like, "Uh uh-oh. So I looked in the back of the appendices, which doesn't count as instructions, and they were extra, so I was good. The McRoberts, the other family, got there, and I hit the ignition button. Nothing happened. I tweaked and tinkered and tried, and I couldn't get it to work, and so we had to take them out to eat. The next day I had off, I had to take that booger apart. And let me tell you, that was no fun. Then I used the instruction manual, and I put it together. And guess what? You hit the ignition button, it lit right up. I sauteed my mushrooms on the eye next to the grill as I grilled the steaks out. See, the people that built it knew how to put it together. They knew how to set it up so it would work. Well, so it is with God. He created us. He made us. And he knows how we best work. And as we look at Acts chapter 15, we have a family situation here. And we can learn from them as we learn from him how we best work as a covenant community, as a covenant family. And so we need to learn some lessons And we can. Let's look first and learn from the conflict that happens, that arises. And then the council, I-L, and then the covenant, the covenant community. Well, let's look first at the conflict. Look at verses 1, 2, 5, and 6. Let me read it. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. Well, a huge conflict arises. And before we get too rough with these, this group of, the Bible says, believers that were in the Pharisee, Pharisee party, let's remember that it's not just that group of the sect of the Pharisees that's struggling, that's adding to the gospel. Peter falls prey to this too. And then so does Barnabas. And so Peter, one of the apostles, and Barnabas, one of the partner, uh, partners of Paul, So it's not a simple thing. We can look at it and go, what in the world? How did that happen? But it's complicated. It's hard. The Mosaic law were these sets of laws. They're not talking about the Ten Commandments. It's this set of laws to help set them apart. It was laws to help them know what they could and couldn't wear, what they could and couldn't eat, what they could had to do to stay clean. And it was all to teach us, to teach them God's holy and we can't handle him any other way. And it was to set them apart in the world as the people of God because they were supposed to be different, a picture of heaven 
on earth. And so it was complicated, and it can seem very simple to us, but they had grown up. It was such a huge part of their identity. And the Gentiles had been uh, this unclean people, and now it was changing. Um, and it was hard, and it was hard to, to work through it. And so they made some mistakes. The early church with the apostles had some struggles. And this conflict comes up just like here in this church, this incredible place. We're going to have some struggles. We're going to have some differences. And so how do we deal with it? There is going to be conflict. And this issue uh, became like this. Tim Keller put it this way. In other words, the opponents of Paul, so you had Paul on one side and Peter on the other, were saying not all Jewish persons were Christians, but all Christians must also be Jewish. Paul was saying, no, Jesus plus nothing, just the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But just remember, even Peter was struggling. Peter, the one who God had said, Jesus had said, Peter, on this rock, I'll build my church. You know what that makes me think and realize? Hey, it's easy to get cocky, isn't it? It's easy to look at other issues and other people and go, man, they are wrong. They get it wrong. How can they do this? How can they not see? It's so clear. But this wasn't. What do we need to learn from this? Be suspicious of yourself. Be careful when you think you're so right. We're all sinners and we're all going to make mistakes. Look at verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered to get together to consider this matter. It became such a big thing that they had to come up with a council. They had to get the apostles and the elders together to work it out, to think it through, to come to an understanding. And the very early church was at stake The gospel, because the gospel was at stake, and they couldn't do it alone. When there are issues, when there's conflict, don't do it alone. Get people who are godly. Get people who are elders and leaders and people who know and understand the Bible and work it out. Think it through. There is a diversity that we need in the family of God, and we've got to use that. We've got to capitalize on that. On that. Now, what do we do when we encounter conflict? Well, Matthew 18 tells us the process we're supposed to go through. Remember, if you have an issue, you go to that person. First and foremost, you go to that person and talk it out with them. But if that doesn't fix it, if that doesn't get it dealt with, then you take another brother or two brothers or two sisters and you go and you talk it out, godly people getting together as a family and working through these things. And if that doesn't work out, then you go to leaders in the church. You get to the church and say, help us. Again, with the foundation of humility. Be suspicious of yourself. Now, we'll talk about the church in just a minute, but it's not just doing Matthew 18. It's how 
do we do Matthew 18? Uh, I was in Augusta, Georgia before we came to uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and they had a strong, vibrant music ministry, and I always would get tickled. They had this one gal that everybody just hem and hauled over, and she played the cymbals. I didn't know there was a first chair cymbal player thing. I'd never heard of that before, and I thought, man, that's, that seems like an easy instrument to play. Now, I was wrong, <laughs> but they just ranted and raved about her, and so I ended up uh, having to preach on 1 Corinthians 13, you know, the love chapter. And you know how it says you can do this, this, and this, but if you don't do it in love, it's like a clanging symbol. Well, you always want to start with a good illustration when you start your uh, sermons. And so I said, hey, I've got this creme de la creme symbol player. I'll just tell her not to be creme de la creme and to bang and clash her symbols as my start-off illustration. I said, just do it for a minute, and after about five seconds, I was about to have a riot in the sanctuary. I was thinking, I'm going to, I can't take this. I'm about to bend those symbols and throw them to, anyway, it, (laughs) the Bible makes sense. Those clanging symbols almost put us to war, and we almost didn't survive it, but I got her to stop, but it really is true. We can do all the right things. We can be Uh, all right in what we do, but not carry it out in a godly way. Without love, we're like a clanging cymbal. And so even if we do Matthew 18, are we doing it in a loving way? What is the process? Well, Ephesians 4 tells us how to do these things. Number one, speak the truth in love. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are members of one body. Be loving. Be honest. We're one body. Rule number two, keep current. Don't let stuff fester and grow. Don't let anger get a foothold in you. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold Work it out quickly. Stay on topic. Don't bring up old animosity. Stick to the one issue. Rule number three, attack problems, not people. Don't make it personal. Well, you never. Well, you always. Well, what does that do to the other person? It automatically puts them on the defensive. Make it about the issue. Not get personal and mean. Uh, 4, 29, and 30. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Oof. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Focus on the problem. Then act, don't react. When you know something's going on, especially if it's a pattern in your life, then Set up a plan. Don't react. When we react, we tend to be way more defensive. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. This conflict was foundational. It was at the very center. It was central to the gospel, and it had to be dealt with but we can see that they dealt with it in a gospel way, in a godly way. They set up a council. 
They didn't isolate. They didn't do it alone. They got the right people in the room. They got the diversity of understanding and wisdom and opinion, and they talked it out, and they thought it through. Wilson Benton, who was an interim pastor before Scott, Scott got here, has incredible sayings. He has a million of them. I've threatened that if he doesn't put them in a book, I'm going to do it, and I'm keeping all the money, and I'm taking all the credit. But here are a couple of them. A mind changed against its will is of the same opinion still. Or you know what a rut is? It's a grave with the ends kicked out. Or if you find a perfect church, don't go there because you'll mess it up. You see, we're all sinful. And again, what is the foundation for these kinds of discussions, these kinds of issues? Because think about this. This is a gospel issue, and it's, it's an ethnic issue. In our day and age, we have so much pressure and intensity around ethnic, ethnicity, eh, ah, ethnicity, racism, politics, all those sensitive, important, incredible issues, and our culture has become so harsh and hard. You're either right or you're wrong. You're either with me or against me. And that's not what we see here in Jerusalem. As the believers, the leaders of the church, the early church, go and counsel together in the context of love, understanding that there are no perfect churches because there are no perfect people. Is that the way we go into discussions? Is that the way we approach sensitive and important issues? Ken Sandy put it this way. Every time you encounter a conflict, you have an opportunity to show what you really believe about God. Do we go into it going, I want to understand what God would have me do in this? What is his will, not what is my way and how do I get it? But let's be honest, when we get into these tough places and intense situations, I don't know about you, but I get defensive, and I, I want to be right, and that can cloud my judgment. It, it can cloud my understanding, and we need each other to work it out, to counsel it. And so here we see in this passage, what did they do? They debated. Now, when you hear that word, what do you think? Do you feel like, uh-oh, we're about to fight? That's what it's become, hadn't it? But that's not what happened here. A debate was intense. It was hard, but it was loving. There was a humility. There was a, there was a settleness, a gentleness about it. And let's remember, conflict is a glorious opportunity. When you hear discipline or conflict, does that feel negative to you? But don't we learn the most when we encounter trials? What did James say? Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter. Ooh, really? Honestly? Can he say that? He should say that. And that should be how we feel. But we need Jesus to deal with us. We need his Holy Spirit to help us. And the Bible promises 
that he will. And so conflict is not a dirty word. Conflict is a beautiful word because it's in conflict through counsel. We're here, we see this counsel with an I-L, but through counsel with an E-L, we grow and develop. And isn't this one of the most important parts of our salvation? Work out our salvation what? with fear and trembling so that we can become more like Christ. It's a part of, the, we're justified when Jesus saves us. It's just as if we never sinned. His righteousness is imputed on us. But then there's this process where we grow and develop and become more like him called sanctification. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. And so this family of God, the early church sets about working on this important issue because it was at the heart of the gospel. This group that was struggling, whose identity had been circumcision, the sign of the covenant, and these mosaic laws to set them apart, to help them be safe and holy and clean and pure so they could be in his presence. Um, they had taken it too far. Um, and when we isolate, when we make it about us, we're going to struggle with that. We're going to make those mistakes. And so we come together and Philippians 2 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. When we do it his way, we shine in the darkness. When we do it with love, the light brightens the darkness. And so it's important, guys, to come here and be together in corporate worship because we're the family of God. Just like that early church got together, we need to be get together in corporate worship. It's important to be a member of the church. Now, I always wish I was a teacher, a lawyer, when I say that, because that's not a guilt trip. Don't hear the preacher going, oh man, I gotta join the church. But hear the preacher saying, oh man, you gotta join the church. Because when you isolate and when you're alone, you will get your honey handed to you, if you're like me, a sinner. And I know because the Bible tells me you're a sinner. And y'all look nice, neat, and pretty, but you're not, and I'm not, and we need each other, and we need to do life together, so join the church. I'm Presbyterian because there are three courts, and I'm so scared of my sin, I need three safety nets that keep me out of trouble. The session, the local body of leaders that you elect to oversee you, to shepherd you, to grow you, to develop you. And then a presbytery, it's a geographical area of churches and those leaders get together and oversee sessions and watch out because we're a mess. And then there's the general assembly that oversees the sessions and it's that 
care and provision of God because we're so sinful and he loves us and so he gives us those protections. And here we have a picture of that as they got together uh, and didn't do this alone and so they learned from one another. And guess what happens? Conflict leads to godly counsel at the Jerusalem council and then guess what? They're reminded of the covenant community that they belong to. And guess who speaks up? Who was struggling? Who had gone to the wrong side in this debate? Wasn't Paul. It was Peter, the rock on which Jesus said he was going to build the church. And who spoke up after the debate, after the discussion, after the the struggle? Peter goes, guys, thank you. Thank you. I I was wrong. We had added to the gospel, and that makes it no gospel at all. It's Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And he humbly comes and says, I I got it wrong. I, I messed it up. And we don't see Paul and James going, mm hmm, got you straightened out. Look at verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, this is beautiful, y'all. Listen to this. We blister over this. Brothers, he's reminded that this is my family. These are my brothers. These are my people. And they love me. And I love them. And I need them. And they need me. I get to do the new members class, and I love the new member questions. They're simple. They're the gospel. They ask you about the gospel. But listen to this. This is question four. Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? Well, that's what happened in this council, IL. They got together, and we're all different. Some of us are hands. Some of us are feet, clearly. Some of us are noses. But we fit together, and I need you, and you need me, and we need each other. And it's in that diversity, in that difference, we grow and develop. And so we got to work together, and Peter says, oh, thank you, brothers. Thank you for protecting me. Thank you for taking care of me. Thank you for being a glorious instrument in the hands of a God who loves me and has saved me. And now through you, through your love for me, through your debate, through your work, through your care, you've sanctified me. You've matured me. You've protected me. You've cared for me. You see, he has a foundation of love and humility that's born out of what Christ has done in his heart and in his life. Verse 7, he reminds them, man, I have been called to give the gospel to the Gentiles, those people that we grew up thinking were unclean. But now this is a different time. I've been called to give them the same gospel that we got. Verse 8, and it's coming through God, and it is the exact same gospel. Verse 9, same thing. It's by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Christ alone, that they are saved just like it's that way for us when we were saved. In verse 10, Peter says, we've got to stop adding to the gospel. And we were just adding to the gospel. Again, I know I'm beating a dead horse, but it's so deeply important. Grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, that sets up this covenant family, the church of which we belong through the love of God. It is grace plus nothing. Grace plus nothing. Well, Paul London, a missionary to Sudan, told this story. He and his wife, Carolyn, were uh, in a ministry in Africa. And he said in this particular tribe, the strongest man of the tribe was elected chief. You might think it's because the chief must wear a very heavy and large headdress. He has to wear these incredibly heavy ceremonial robes to distinguish him as the king of the tribe. But there are other reasons that he's really elected uh, king of the tribe. Water in this area of Africa, the Sudan, is very scarce. And so they have to dig really deep wells, sometimes as deep as 100 feet down. And these aren't wells like we think of them. There's no brick uh, cylinder. There are no pulleys and buckets. Uh, they're simply just a shaft down into the ground that, again, can be as deep as 100 feet. And the water seeps in over the day, throughout the day, into these shafts where, and collect in the bottom. And so they build slits in the sides of the uh, shaft down, and the, so they have to use the strongest men who will go down these long shafts and scoop up the water, but then they have to carry it back up. Um, and so that's how they do it. And they, they have to, they put the different slits in different places because if you didn't make it hard, people would just abuse that water. They just use it when they wanted to. Different people could go down and get it. And it's very scarce and it has to be rationed out because it's hard uh, to get enough water, or other tribes, other people would go down and take other tribes' water, and there'd be feuds in that regard. And so um, they did it this way for protection as well. Well, one time, one of their tribesmen had gone down to get the water, and he fell, and he broke his leg. And so they ran to the, the king, and said, hey, our man's down. He's at the bottom of the well. No one could go down. So they knew they couldn't pick him up and carry him back up. And so the chief was summoned. When he saw the plight of the injured man, he took off his massive head, headdress. He discarded his ceremonial robe. And then the chief climbed down into the well, took the weight of the injured man on himself, and brought the man to safety. The chief did what no one else could do, just as Christ did for us what no one else could do. And this was the crux of the issue. And through the conflict 
and through the council and through the reminder of the covenant community that they belong to, grace plus nothing was proclaimed. Grace plus nothing won the day and held on to the early church and held on to Peter and Paul and James and Barnabas and those believers. And it is grace alone, Jesus plus nothing, that holds on to us. And so, oh, Christ Presbyterian Church, cool springs, that you and I would be a community like this because we're going to have conflict. But oh, that we would lovingly humbly counsel together so that God can lead us even in and especially through conflict as he sanctifies us, as he makes us more and more like Jesus so that we are a light in Nashville, a light in Cool Springs so that we can love like he loves us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we love you. We thank you. We're so grateful for your goodness, for your care, for your provision. We're so thankful that it's grace alone that we cannot do it ourselves. But you have done what is required. You have redeemed us. You have bought us back with a price. And we celebrate it. Be glorified and make us more and more like you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.